In spite of our culture seeing so much transition in the last 60 to 70 years from what we would be considered uh, Judeo-Christian culture to what people now would say is more of a secular culture. And that happened more in Europe than here in America, but it's definitely happening here. And we feel it and we don't always know how to respond. But in spite of that, people still have the question, what does it mean to be a good person? And people still care about being a good person, even though it's not always clear how we know what a good person is. And the reason I can tell you is this movie isn't even out yet. This is a poster for a movie coming out next month. It's called A Good Person. Morgan Freeman's in it. And I don't know the actress who's starring, uh, but this movie's coming out. And this is a description of this movie. Allison is a young woman with a wonderful fiance, a blossoming career, and a supportive family and friends. However, her world crumbles in the blink of an eye when she survives in an unmanageable tragedy, emerging from recovery from an opioid addiction and unresolved grief. In the following years, she forms an unlikely friendship with her would-be father-in-law that gives her a fighting chance to put her life back together and move forward. So lots of things that we would hear about in today's world, but this is what is going on. This story is written to try to understand, well, how do we take the current challenges and then still be a good person? And I think my guess is that Morgan Freeman in this movie is playing the character of the, of the father-in-law who is supposed to be the guide for this young woman. But even in the culture where there's so many different ideas about what it means to be a good person, so many different ideas about what it means to live a good life, we still make movies that try to make sense of what it looks like. People still, still care about being a good person in 2023. Otherwise, the people making this movie would have no chance at anyone coming to it. Because they want to try to figure out, well, how do we take today's challenges and be a good person? But the problem with all of these ideas, now I don't know anything about the movie specifically, so I can't say that the movie has this problem, but our culture's problem is we can't agree on where we get the idea of good and what it means to be good and what a good person is. And because of that, we have all of this disagreement. Today, we get to explore these ideas as we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. So you're going to take out your Bibles and, uh, and follow along to Matthew 21, verse 30, or Matthew 5, verse 21, or in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along, it's page 1378, and it will be on the screen, and before we get to Matthew, we'll be doing a couple of the other passages. Those aren't, uh, those are on the screen. I don't have the page number for those, but we're going to be taking a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37, as we explore this idea of what is the good life? What does it mean to be a good person? What does Jesus have to say about all that? Now, before we get there, we have to ask this idea of what does it mean to be a good person? Because like I said, our culture doesn't agree on this. Our culture, some people say being a good person is this, being a good person is that. And usually for the, the contemporary culture that we hear on the news and in TV and in movies, is it comes down to politics, right? One side or the other. You're a good person if you believe with these politics on that side. You're a good person if you believe with these politics on this side. And the two sides can't get along. But what I'd say is we need to put all of that aside and we need to go to the source, the one who made us and ask the question, what does it mean to be good? Because that is where we need to start. 
And this passage from Deuteronomy wants to answer that question. So let's take a look here. This is how it starts here. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I said before you today, life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I commanded you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commandments, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Now, Deuteronomy is Moses' final speech to the Israelites. And he goes through this whole reminder to say, look, God wants to bless you and make you his holy people, but he's asked you to live this life. And so he's saying here in these passages, look, if you live the life that God has called you to love God and to walk in obedience, then you will find life. And if you don't, there's this section where it talks about how things could go wrong for Israel. Now, people usually want to say, okay, that means that God decided what's right and what's wrong. And that is true. But that's not the way that we think about it. It's not arbitrary. It's not as if God looked at two options and said, well, I like this and not that. The way you need to think about it is this. God made the world with order and purpose. He took something that was chaotic and he brought it together and he said, I'm going to order and give this purpose. And he made it a certain way. And whenever the world is put together in that way, you find life. Those are the conditions for life. It's not as if God says, okay, you're living the right way. I'm going to stamp you with a good life. It's more built into our DNA that this is a good life. So we can think about it like this. There's only one way to put together a puzzle, right? I mean, maybe you can squeeze some pieces together, but the puzzle only comes together one way because that's how it was made to be the full picture. Or... Think about a bottle that you break on the ground. And if you want to try to put it back together, there's this whole um, art project in, uh, in Asian cultures where they would take broken teapots and they put them back together with gold in between the cracks. So you would have this broken teapot that would now be whole again and there would be precious metal holding it together, this beautiful thing. But they only go back together one way, right? Or in this example, I'm going to uh, out myself a little bit. There's only one outcome when Indiana plays Purdue, right? Indiana's going to win. Right? They won last week. I know that I'm picking sides here, but this is fun. For a long time, Indiana and Purdue has been a fun rivalry. I actually don't watch basketball that much anymore, but I know some of you like basketball still. And here, when we have our team, whatever our team is, of course our team's going to win, and that's the way it's got to be. Now, the idea here is God yes, made the world to have right and wrong, but it's because that's how it was designed. So the good life is a life lived according to God's design. It's a life according to God's order and purpose. I like to call it the way of Jesus. Now, the way of Jesus is about a way of returning to true life, and that's what we're called to. That's when we say we make followers of Jesus to live the way of Jesus. Together, we're trying to figure out how to live a life on the way of Jesus because that leads to a life of goodness, tov, as it said in Genesis 1, in order and purpose, in harmony. And then it brings the other word we like to say, shalom, which is God's peace to the world. So this is the goal. There's only one way to live. But this is what also the Israelites realized on that day. 19. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
But the, the, the key here is this, now choose life. We get a choice. So for Israel, they had that choice. And in the end, they chose to live the life that their neighbors were living instead of the life God had called them to. We all get to have this choice. Are we gonna choose the way of Jesus? Are we gonna choose rebellion? And those two things don't go together. And when I say rebellion, I just mean that we're trying to put the puzzle together wrong and we wonder why we can't get it together. Well, it's because it's not the way it goes together. And only God can show us. Are we gonna choose life or death? Now, choosing life is one thing because I know a lot of you have been here for a long time and you're like, okay, we get that part. But we try and we struggle. Well, if we think about what Paul said right here, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. So Paul in this passage is acknowledging to the Corinthians, you are not living this life on the way of Jesus. He says, I cannot say, and the way that Paul talks about that, this is live by the Spirit. When Paul says live by the Spirit, it's my way of saying live the way of Jesus. The same idea. Paul says, you're not living by the Spirit, you're not living a worldly life. Instead, you're living the opposite. So for Paul, he's getting to the idea of living a life of God is living a life in the Spirit. And when you live in the spirit, this is what he says. So neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So this is what's going on in Corinthians, just to bring all of it for us to understand. There's people there making factions. Okay, well, we follow Paul. Other people saying we follow Peter, the apostle from the New Testament. Other, this guy named Apollos. And, and then Paul says, wait a minute, no. You're all supposed to follow Jesus. All of us are just workers in God's field. We can't make you grow. Only God makes you grow. So the idea being, when it comes to following Jesus, it's not about following me or any other pastor or anybody. It's about following Jesus. Jesus, because God alone makes us grow. As Jesus says in John 14, all of this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And we grow through the Holy Spirit that has come to dwell in us. We don't have to go at this life alone. We're trying to be good people. We're not doing it alone. God wants to help. He wants to be the one growing in us to remake us. So we grow into the good life through the guidance and the partnership and the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we do on our own. Part of the world's problem is that we want to try to solve all of our problems with our own minds. And we are incredibly creative and resourceful. But without that guide to say, this is the life you're trying to get to, the Holy Spirit guiding us, we'll never get there. And we'll never be able to grow on our own. But this still leaves a really important question. So the good life is defined by God because it's the design for the world. It's the puzzle we're trying to find and put together. And God's there to show us. And he's there to help us. 
But the practical question is, okay, well, we, if we want to be good people, if we want to live a good life, if we want to be people who are good, what in us needs to change? And this is where Jesus comes in. Matthew 5, 21, this is what he says first. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, what Peter, uh, Jesus is doing here is in the Sermon on the Mount, these are called antitheses. That's the special scholarly word. And basically, he's taking uh, this certain formula and he's applying it to these ideas. So he's taking common interpretations of his day, and then he's quoting the scripture and he's giving his own interpretation. So he's saying, you have teachers who tell you to do this according to these passages. And then Jesus says, okay, well, I am going to come and I'm going to show you God's heart behind these commands. This is really important. We are getting direct insight into how God really thinks about the way he wants us to live. And for this first example, it's about murder. And it's easy for us to say, okay, well, I didn't actually murder anybody, so I'm good. And Jesus says, that's the way we want, you want to think. But he says, wait a minute, if you are showing hate towards your brother or sister, and he uses this example of if you say raka, which is Aramaic for saying somebody's basically um, worthless, or simply you say you're a fool, he's saying that they're rejecting their sibling. And for people to say that to a sibling beyond just a very specific moment, if that moment happens and then you have this lingering relationship with a sibling that develops into hate or disdain or dissent or anger, what Jesus is saying is you are in danger of murder. Because murder doesn't start with that action, it starts with the heart and the anger that cultivates into hate inside of you. Long before you get to murder, you have hate. And Jesus says hate is what you should be worried about because that's what's on the inside that makes those actions come out. So Jesus isn't just about behavior. He's about the source. Just like if we want to kill a weed, right? If, you're, if you have a bunch of thistles in your yard, you know you have to get everything, right? You have to get the roots because if you just pull the top out, it doesn't matter. It's going to grow back. You have to get the roots. The murder is the plant. The root is the hate in our heart. And Jesus says that's what you need to work on. Because good people have a good heart. Good people have a good heart. And when we live this way, this is what he says. Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and therefore remember... Uh, that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Just go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now what Jesus is saying is like, look, look at your heart. Care more about other people than yourself. Resolve issues. Strive for reconciliation. 
Put other people before yourself because good people have a good heart. And long before murder, you have hate or you have dissent or you have any number of those words that we harbor against other people before we do anything. We might live our whole life that way and never actually act on it. But that's a life of a broken relationship. Good people have a good heart. And I'm not saying that every relationship can be mended, but it's how we look and think about those relationships. What do we harbor about other people is what matters. I mean, maybe you can never mend that relationship. Maybe it's not healthy to mend it. I'm not saying it should be. But what is it you hold about that person inside of you? That's what we need to let go of. Because that's where murder starts. And then Jesus goes on. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully and already has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your whole hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. And in the ancient world, adultery was sleeping with someone else's wife. So for men, it didn't matter. It's if it was someone else's wife. Now that's obviously not how we think about it today and also not the, actually the way scripture teaches. That's just the way the Romans thought about it. But when it comes to adultery, Jesus says, you know, it's not that act that's the problem. It's your heart. Long before you make that act, there's something in your heart that goes wrong. When you see somebody, you see a person and you have this desire that you let fester in your brain and you let it go and go and go. That's the source of adultery, long before the act. And Jesus says, run from those thoughts. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now he's being a little bit, like the word we would say is hyperbolic. He's in hyperbole or exaggeration. Because the point is, you should be so far away from those thoughts and run away as quickly as you can. Because they will lead to a heart that wants adultery. Good people have a good heart. And he says here in 31, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of a divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her, makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a, a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, only men could divorce their wives. So Jesus is saying to those men, look, those of you who just don't like your wife and you come up with an excuse to divorce her, you're forcing her into a situation that God never designed. And there were teachers that had different opinions in the ancient world. It wasn't as if they all agreed. Some were more extreme, some were less extreme. All Jesus is saying is, it's about the heart. If you have a heart that wants to see goodness in other people, you're going to be working out those relationships if you can. Now Jesus leaves lots of room as we think about divorce to understand that it's a very complicated thing. But the heart is good people have a good heart. And if we want to be people who avoid all of these challenges or to navigate them as the best way possible, we start with our heart. That's what Jesus is about. Life is messy. I'm not going to deny that. And I know that Jesus would have acknowledged that as well. 
But all the people, he says, start with your heart. A good people have a good heart. And he says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or or for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no, and anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, in the ancient world, people would make oaths. Just like, you know, for us, we have these sort of fun sayings that kids say. I mean, I guess this is on TV shows. I don't know if kids actually say this. Something like, I swear on my mother's grave. People might say something like that. Or whenever you're trying to convince somebody that you're telling them the truth, you say, I swear I'm telling you the truth. Would I lie to you? Things like that. And the reason we have to do that is because we know people lie. And even we sometimes lie. And what Jesus says is, it's not about saying those things. He says, let your words be what they are. Say yes or no. Be a person with integrity and honesty. That is what you're to be. So it's not about the oaths. The oaths don't mean a thing because if you're a person with integrity, you don't need the oaths. The oath is a way of showing and doing something to say that you're an honest person. And Jesus says, you know what? If you make an oath and you have integrity, you're going to keep it. It's about the heart. So when it comes to good people and being good people, it starts with God and the design for the world that he made. But humans have rebelled. And so the whole story of scripture is about God restoring our broken relationship and also restoring the broken creation. The creation that is led away from goodness and order and purpose because of human rebellion. And God says, I want to remake the world, but it starts with humans, with us being good partners with him. So he says, I have to show you again what is a good life. So we should want to be good people, not because it earns us a place in God's kingdom, but because it's the result of being people who live in the kingdom, who live according to the Holy Spirit and are transformed by the Holy Spirit into people who want to do the work of Jesus and live the way of Jesus. And so when it comes to being those kinds of people, it starts with God through the power of the Holy Spirit and it transforms our hearts. Good people have a good heart. So when we want to be good people, we come to God through prayer in his word. So this is the way it goes. This is the way I think about it. Us coming and being a part of worship is us acknowledging that we need God to help us understand the world. Worship is acknowledging that he alone is worthy of our praise and our, um, the word would be our adoration, but also we give him our allegiance or we pledge ourselves to follow him, to follow Jesus, our king. And Jesus says, I'm going to show you how to live. And then there's this relationship where we have a relationship with Jesus. We read the word of God. And through the word of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us starts to transform us. So we can have this conversation with Jesus. We can say, Jesus, what is it in my life that needs to be transformed? If we ask that question and you open and you listen, and if you listen long enough, you will hear. And I bet all of us have something inside of all of us right now that we know we need to change. We sometimes call it our conscience, but with the Holy Spirit, our conscience becomes God's guidance. So this week, we can say this very simple prayer. 
Jesus, show me where I can grow in my heart this week. If you say that prayer and you listen every day and you're reading scripture in the morning or whenever you'd like to do it, he will speak to you. And then that's that first step. But the more that you start to pray about those things and think about them and be aware of the places you need to grow and bringing them before God, actually the more that it starts to open up. Because I can tell you first thing in my life, since we started to have that moment every week after the confession, when I say I encourage you to confess your own sins, there's certain things I know that I really struggle with that every week I start to mention. And God knows, I know. But I'll tell you, since we've been doing that, I've actually noticed it's easier. Those things that I used to struggle with, I don't notice as much. They're less of a challenge. Nothing's perfect. There's no guarantee. God and Jesus have lots of grace and forgiveness, but he wants to help us live a better life. He wants us to be good people. He wants to remake our hearts because good people have a good heart.